Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. We start off this episode with our monthly roundup of prison disturbances, as compiled by Perilous Chronicle. On October 4th, four prisoners held captive at the Trooped County Jail in LaGrange, Georgia, set fire to a pile of prisoner uniforms in response to prison staff revoking television access. The prisoners were denied access to television as a punishment for an unknown violation. According to jail staff, The prisoners were able to dismantle a light fixture and then use the live wires to set the clothes on fire. Once smoke was detected, the unit was evacuated. All four prisoners are being charged with riot, and two of the prisoners have additional charges, including arson. Five prisoners at the Tecumseh State Prison in Nebraska intentionally set fires in their cells on October 5th, refusing orders to comply with guards after a so-called emergency response team was brought in, four prisoners were extracted from their cells and one, 27-year-old Jesse Spencer, was found dead. Local media did not report on the motivation for the protest, nor on the cause of Spencer's death. Nine people detained at the Charles B. Webster Detention Center in Augusta, Georgia, are accused of setting fires in their cells using a pillowcase and a jumpsuit. The fires activated the facility's fire suppression system, which flooded the cell block. Guards responding to the incident put out the fires with a wet blanket. Jail authorities and local media did not explain the detainees' motivations for acting, but did report that the protest came one day after media and Richmond County commissioners toured the overcrowded and decaying facility. Two detainees at the St. Louis City Justice Center in Missouri attacked a guard, stealing his pepper spray and arming themselves with a broomstick. The pair were pepper sprayed by another guard who responded, according to local media. The attack comes just two months after a similar attack at the same facility in which detainees were able to free 40 to 50 others from their cells and take control of the cell block. On Monday, October 16th, at around 3 a.m. in the morning, four prisoners escaped from the Bibb County Detention Center in Macon, Georgia. Allegedly, the prisoners escaped through a broken day room window and a cut fence. The facility was understaffed that evening. One prisoner was recaptured on October 26th in Montezuma. Another prisoner was recaptured on November 3rd in Atlanta, Georgia. As of Sunday, November 5th, the other two prisoners have yet to be captured. A letter announcing a hunger strike due to dire conditions, dated October 18th, was released from a group of prisoners held in solitary confinement, or the Secure Adjustment Unit, at the Sousa Baranowski Correctional Center in Lancaster, Massachusetts. Advocates have said that 19 prisoners were involved in the hunger strike, who were protesting limited out-of-cell time and restrictions on their activities. It's unclear when the hunger strike officially started, but the Department of Corrections acknowledged the strike and that the prisoners refused medical and mental health assessments. The department also said the prisoners were now accepting meals. Prison advocates have said that those involved in the strike were previously held at MCI Cedar Junction, which closed in June of 2023. 
At MCI Cedar Junction, there was a lawsuit against the DOC for holding prisoners in restrictive housing for longer periods than allowed under law. The lawsuit was dropped when the facility closed, but advocates at the Boston Law School Civil Rights Clinic said the unit at the SAUSA is no better than where the men were held at MCI Cedar Junction and intend to investigate further. On Monday, October 23rd, four prisoners escaped from the Adelphoi Village Sweeney Home, an intensive supervision residential facility for juveniles in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. According to reports, the facility is not locked, so the prisoners simply walked out and fled the area. The following day, October 24th, two of the prisoners were recaptured. Shortly after, the other two prisoners returned to the facility but were transported for medical care because they were injured while allegedly jumping over a fence. Shortly before this escape, on October 18th, a prisoner also escaped from the same facility. Up next, we have Candle, an anarchist writer who is currently serving a sentence in Oregon. I'm Sophia Johnson. Um, my pronouns are she, they, but um, I, I prefer going by Candle, uh, my nickname. Um, um, so I'm currently incarcerated at Coffee Creek Correctional Facility. It's a woman's prison out here in Wilsonville, Oregon. Um, I'm originally from Broward County, Florida. Um, I came to Portland originally to help with the uprising and a string of arrests arising from initially arrest at the riots resulted in my current 90-month sentence that I'm serving here. And so you're a writer. Were you writing before you were incarcerated? So I didn't write much before incarceration. Um, off and on I'd write, but it was, I, I mostly made memes. I, I thought it was more fun to edit memes together than really to write something that um, I, I had no real credential. So I felt as if people just wouldn't really read my writing. Um, so I really started writing more um, enough at least to call myself a writer here in prison. So what made me want to start writing initially was um, for the brief period of time that the Portland um, ABC was willing to supposedly support me. I had Mongoose Distro um, out of Brooklyn reach out and offer to publish zines of my writings if I wanted to. And I had initially received some pushback from some of my initial correspondence about sharing my story, like what led to my arrest. Um, and that, that was actually the first story that I wrote um, to have Mongoose Distro published was just the expropriation that inevitably led to my sentence. Um, mostly I write philosophy now. Um, I'm in the publishing stages of getting out a kind of a loose sequel to Nietzsche's Zarathustra titled Wax. It's um, fittingly written in parable with some 
poems interlaced within, but mostly it's just poetic prose. And I'm in the final stages of writing a metaphysical critique of um, reality, um, centering on the idea of power and life as an aesthetic creation. Um, it's titled The Anti-Fascist, and I hope to finish it later this year. Um, my wax will probably be published sometime this year by Little Black Cart. I, mean, I know a lot of people have found you from squatting as an illegalist anarchist. I feel like maybe that's one of the more circulated texts. Yeah, it actually, from from what I can discern at least, um, most of the people that write me tend to mention squatting as an illegalist anarchist. Um, I've had a couple of instances where people reach out to me after reading my um, On Governments and Borders, but largely I think um, there's kind of a lack of first-person narratives of, um, like, the insurrectionist anarchist just living, just existing nihilistically, which, I don't know, people really seem to just like the story. And what do you, what is your affinity with um, Luigi Galliani? I originally read Galliani's um, The End of Anarchy in, I want to say 2020, um, and I fell in love with it. I loved how he talked about individualism being compatible with, um, like, the collectivism of his time, which... I'd, I'd sometimes like to, I guess, draw parallels with more communal struggle in the day-to-day. -day. I, I guess my affiliation with Galliani is just, like, I like his writing. Um, I like that he was a man of action. And I like his... I like his rhetoric. I like how he says things like, it's always time to act, and that, um, like, we possess, like, immense potential, almost, we're we're like a lion that is just waking or something to that effect. Like initially, you know, we're a bit groggy, but inevitably, like we're we're pretty ferocious in our actions and defying the state. Do you feel like your writing um, taking form in prison is on that line of thinking? Like this, you know, I know you kind of have a idea that there is a certain standard to uphold about about being being an anarchist in prison um is is writing does writing function in a specific way towards like a revolutionary goal or the way that you connect with others both inside and outside i mean i'm wondering a bit uh yeah how it's functioning for you so for me writing serves i guess the end of allowing me to continue engaging in discourse um at this point, um, the stakes are somewhat high if I resort to any sort of action. I'm probably looking at a life sentence for my next conviction. Um, so writing is kind of just how I can strike this balance between contributing to what, what I see as the furthering of anarchist theory and um, I guess just like avoiding the wrath of the state. It keeps my mind sharp, and most of what I'm doing in here is kind of working on um, my intellectual growth because it's really the only thing that you can 
do out of a cell um, effectively, in my opinion. Are you able to share your work with anyone that you are locked up with right now? Like, whenever I get a chance, whenever I just get the vibe, whenever someone tells me, like, oh, I loved the Black Lives Matter riots, or just I love Black Lives Matter, or I love anarchy, something to that effect, I'll share my writing. Um, and I, I get pretty um, favorable takes on it. Um, I've I've actually had women kiss my zines that I share, um, multiple of my zines even. Um, someone actually kissed every page of my squatting as an illegal assigner kiss, um, which I, I didn't necessarily know how to take it other than, I guess, to feel flattered. But um, there are some, I guess, negative results also. I've had, um, I've had officers interview me about supposedly starting some sort of gang just for sharing my writing. So, um, I mean, the only way they would have known that I have even shared my zines is um, through inmate reporting, so I guess that's a thing that also happens. Um, but I, I share my writings when I can, um, and when people send in zines, normally after I read them, um, I'll either put them on our bookshelf or pass them off to someone who I know it's um, an inf affinity of theirs, um, such as like Ecology, I have someone who I normally hand off zines to. Um, anything um, occult or magic-oriented. I have a couple of people that are really into that stuff, so I'll normally pass off scenes to them, too. Um, that's essentially what sharing literature is like in here. Um, like, just about anything, and prison doesn't want you to do it, and you kind of have to look out for rats. And you are studying currently, right, through the University of Oregon? Yeah, so... Um, I'm taking classes through the U of O and um, Portland State. Um, so currently they only offer um, a liberal arts degree pass, um, and probably for the foreseeable future they will. Um, I learned yesterday that the Department of Corrections actually like handpicks and approves certain classes. Um, so we've kind of had a lack of um, math courses, science courses, and it's mostly um, history, um, sociology, um, we've had an anthropology class. I, I actually had an, an interesting discussion yesterday. I don't know if it's really going to come to fruition, but um, Portland State um, actually really wants to take me on as a math instructor here, just due to, um, I guess, the issue probably in getting math graduate students, let alone professors, to volunteer to teach in a prison. Yeah. I'm, really intrigued by math. I think math ties in really well with philosophy. It's, um, it's one of the few ways to observe truths from our phenomenal reality. Speaking a bit about the possibility of teaching, you're doing your writing. Um, what else do you find that you are taking up in you know, your project of life in these circumstances? Um, well, I've been trying to develop some sort of sense of communal struggle amongst the prisoners that um, there's, there's kind of been this, this culture that's been in the prison since, since anyone I speak to really can remember where no one's really united really against the cops. 
Um, they're more aiming for like horizontal violence instead of directing any sort of that like anger, frustration upwards. Um, and it, it can be damaging. Um, it can hurt these women's emotions. Um, it leads to political arguments that um, are never good um, in my interpersonal life. And it's just, huh, it's, it's a lot to deal with. Um, and I've been trying to gradually kind of shift the paradigm towards um, like these cops aren't your friends. They work for the institution that deprives you of life and liberty. Um, but it's it's difficult. Um, people in here don't trust you, and they're really standoffish. So even overcoming that's really difficult. You said that you um, have a book coming out. Has a lot of your the writing and publishing side of things that you know has been like a process of your support team, right? Yeah, so um, I can't type in here. So um, one little black cart needed a, a typed manuscript. Um, that was basically all the work of Monday's sister. He typed it all up for me. Um, I would write it, and um, I have like a composition notebook in here that I basically write in all the time. So I would hand copy it so I'd have an original copy. Um, just in case uh, the mailroom loses my mail, which has happened a couple of times. But, um, so Matt gets my hand-copied transcription or whatever, my hand-copied manuscript and transcribes it. Um, and that's that's been how I've even got Little Blackheart to look at it, um, let alone communicating with them. Um, I've had no luck communicating with them through the mail, so it's all been through either Mongoose Distro um, or, yeah, I think it's basically just been him. He's he's basically helped me um, publish the whole book. So it sounds like a lot of your time is spent studying, writing, working on these projects. But I also know that since you were arrested, you have had quite, yeah, long-term struggles for advocating for health care. Um, both for like a possible traumatic brain injury and ongoing from there. Do you want to speak a bit to your access to healthcare and things like this? Yeah, so um, when I was arrested on, it wasn't my June 8th arrest, it was um, one of the prior arrests at the squat. Um, my um, arresting peace officer, um, put me in um, the George Floyd chokehold um, while I was already in cuffs, while I was basically just getting ready to get booked, um, like get thrown in the car, rather. Um, it's kind of out of nowhere, but it scraped off part of my head, um, like right at the back of your head where um, like your spine meets your cerebellum. So I was very concerned. It was an open wound for, I want to say, five or six months. Like it just never healed. Um, and I was unable to get any health care for it. Um, initially, when I got sent, like, booked, when when they set my bail high and I couldn't get out anymore of um, jail, um, they were refusing me health care because um, it was kind of well-known amongst the sheriffs at the jail who I was, why I was there, and um, I was very, very hated um, from what my attorneys tell me. Um, 
obviously they have a, a bit of a bigger perspective on the jail. Um, I would hate it more than their clients who were child pedophiles or like child rapists or murderers. Like it, it was just like really disproportionate hatred for me. So I would show my head wound to the medical staff at the jail after like probably like a week or something of trying to get their attention, um, trying to get them to take it seriously because um, it was an open wound and I'm sitting in um, solitary confinement because that was the jail's policy for trans people. It was to place them indeterminately in solitary. And that I've, I've had, I'd say maybe two, two medical staff from the jail that had looked at it. Um, one of them laughed in my face and didn't say anything. They just moved on. And the other just told me to my face that they couldn't do anything about it, which now I know is incorrect. But I was just starting to deal with, I guess, the justice system in like an overt fashion. So I, I didn't necessarily know like my, my legal rights and my, my attorneys weren't super helpful. Because um, they're criminal attorneys, like I guess it's outside of their area of expertise, but I, I just didn't really have anything. So fast forward to prison, because um, the whole time I couldn't get treatment for this wound. Um, it's now infected um, probably, I want to say like nine months into my sentence. Um, I still haven't been able to get anyone to look at it seriously. I've had two-ish, maybe three appointments. Um, where they've taken a look at it, but they've just told me, like, they can't do anything. It's healing. Um, again, kind of, like, contentious, sort of, like, sorry, contemptuous, sort of, like, perspective on my head wound. I've had one of the nurse practitioners here laugh in my face when I showed them it, because um, th they asked how I got it, and, you know, I told the story, and they just pretty much find it humorous for some reason, but eventually I got like antibiotic ointment to put on it for the infection. So I have some hair there now, it's kind of healed over. Um, I have like a pretty big, like elliptical scar now, like right under that like little abrasion that we have on like the back of our head. It's just kind of forever there now, I guess. Kind of sucks, but eventually I got like antibiotic ointment that you can buy over the counter after like like a year, year and a half. It's really difficult to navigate the healthcare system here. Would you like to speak a bit about like medical care around transitioning? So I've been on my hormones in custody since I want to say late February of last year. Um, there was roughly like a, like a month and a half period where um, the facility was denying me my hormones, despite the fact that I've been transitioning on via hormones for, I think, four years before I came to jail or prison. Um, my jail that I was in did a similar thing where I went around like a month, a month and a half without hormones. Um, but I, I currently get hormones. Um, they actually check my hormone levels pretty consistently. Because um, I've had I've had attorneys uh, kind of threaten the facility, um, and I've literally just gotten to the point where I'll quote case law um, from my own legal study 
to medical staff rather than trying to speak to them in more layman terms because they just are, are going to ignore you. Um, so I've been trying to get um, gender-affirming surgery for um, the entirety of my time in prison. <laughs> I learned when I came to prison through uh, my attorneys that um, prisons actually have to provide um, gender-affirming surgeries. They're medically necessary, and um, later I learned from my own legal study that the medical care in prison has to be commensurate with medical care that you would receive while free, and further, that medical decisions can only be formed via medical consensus, so they can't be influenced by economic um, sway or political sway, e.g., like they can't say they hate trans people, so they're not going to provide trans surgeries. They can't say the surgery is too expensive, so they won't provide it. So I'm kind of in this struggle where the facility is saying that they're going to give me my surgery. Um, I just recently got my second letter of approval for the surgery, um, not even two days ago, um, wherein it's approved by the second therapist and whatnot. So um, I, I'm supposed to consult with a surgeon sometime soon, but um, the fact of the matter is that no one at this facility has yet received any um, feminizing gender-affirming surgery. Um, so it's, it's like, it's kind of hard to believe that it'll ever happen when some of these women in here have been trying to get their gender-affirming surgeries for, um, I want to say, seven, eight years. And um, the prisons just keep moving the goalposts. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of struggling. I, I just recently um, had a lawsuit accepted against the facility, so I'm in my first lawsuit against the prison, and it relates to um, what amounts to a de facto ban on vaginoplasty, and um, since this facility um, utilizes a bottom-up procedure where they um, perform vaginoplasty before they get to mammoplasty or facial feminization or anything thereof, or therein, rather, um, it, it just means there's, there's essentially a blanket ban on any other procedure. Um, even though I've met um, medical criteria, even though it's um, been deemed medically necessary, the facility is refusing to allow me to get these procedures, which um, I wouldn't even have to pay for because my insurance covers it. So they've kind of put my whole transition on pause, and um, they are doing the same thing to every other trans woman here. So I just took it to the courts. I, I could, I guess, speak to the DOC's current excuses, um, if that's desired, because um, they can't outright say that they're not going to deny the procedure, so they've kind of gotten a bit clever. Um, at first, they said that they couldn't take anyone outside of the facility for procedures due to COVID, and that put everyone's um, gender-affirming care um, on the back burner for like two years while the facility handled COVID. Um, currently, they're just claiming there's a huge wait list, which, yeah, like there's kind of a long wait list for vaginoplasty, but if you've been waiting for like six or seven years, like you should just be at the top of the wait list. Um, it's not like you're going to suffer less without the procedure if it's been deemed medically necessary. So, um, 
I mean, the DOC only approved, or they only have one surgeon that they contract through. Um, what I've heard from some of the other women who are trying to get the procedure is that they've already had their consultations like years ago with this surgeon. They've already discussed the procedure. They were just waiting for the surgery to take place. And it's literally never going to happen. Like, they agree with me. Like, the goalpost keeps moving. It's always some new excuse. Um, the facility just doesn't want to handle it. They don't want to do it. And um, they know that's wrong. They know that's illegal. But they, I mean, that, that's not going to stop the prison. Like, they do wrong and illegal stuff just by existing pretty much every day. This has been KiteLine. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.